In late November of 1913, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria and William, Duke of Portland, set out for a day of pheasant hunting on the grounds of the Duke's English estate. Both men were avid hunters. They crept forward through the woodlands in tense anticipation, followed by a retinue of loaders, beaters, and hunting dogs. Before either man had a chance to fire his weapon, one of the loaders behind them tripped over a gopher hole. The rifle he was carrying fell to the ground and discharged. A shot passed so close to Ferdinand's head, he could hear it whiz past his ear. It was a close call, but the Archduke shrugged it off. Hunting, after all, could be a dangerous sport. Years later, when the Duke of Portland thought back to that day, he couldn't help but wonder how differently things might have turned out if Ferdinand hadn't been so lucky. In his memoirs, he wrote, I have often wondered whether the Great War might not have been averted, or at least postponed, had the Archduke met his death then and not at Sarajevo the following year. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was shot by Gavrilo Princip in 1914, sparking the outbreak of the First World War. This week, we'll delve into the lives of Princip and Ferdinand and explore the cultural and historical context in which their lives crossed. Next week, we'll explore the aftermath of the assassination and how it set off a chain of events that completely altered the 20th century. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In 1909, 15-year-old Gavrilo Princip returned from school to spend his summer at home in the dusty village of Oble in western Bosnia. Gavrilo's father was a farmer, and the family lived in a small wooden hut built over a stone stable where they kept their animals. On this summer afternoon, Gavrilo was lying in the grass behind his home, scratching his initials into a large rock with a small hammer and chisel. A friend came by and asked him why he was doing such a thing. He looked up and said, "'Because one day, people will know my name.'" When he was finished, he etched a square around his initials and put the date, 1909. The rock, with its faded etching, still lies in the untended grass around the ruins of the old Princip family home. At the tender age of 15, young Princip already had designs on being famous, hoping to emulate the great Serbian heroes he'd been learning about since childhood. Many of these heroes were remembered for standing up to foreign oppressors, assassinating tyrants, and driving out despotic foreign regimes. Their stories were told at family gatherings and around campfires, 
where folk songs invoked the glory of Slavic heroes and called down damnation on their oppressors. During Princip's time, Austria-Hungary was the foreign oppressor that had control over Bosnia. The Austrian emperor, Franz Joseph, was over 80 years old. His younger nephew and heir, Franz Ferdinand, was the future of the empire's rule. Revolutionaries like Gavrilo Princip wanted the Bosnian people to be completely free from the rule of Austria-Hungary, united instead with the rest of the South Slav lands. Ferdinand stood in the way of that dream, so following in the tradition of their folk heroes, Princip and a group of fellow revolutionaries murdered him in June of 1914. Nothing in his early life would have suggested that Gavrilo Princip was destined to influence world history. Born in 1894, his hometown was little more than a collection of huts and hovels along a dirt road in rural western Bosnia. Like many in Bosnia, he and his family were ethnic Serbians, and they eked out a meager living farming a few acres of land. Gavro, as his family called him, grew up small but strong, a serious, quiet boy with an iron will, more likely to be found reading books or working in the fields than playing with the other children, Princip showed an early aptitude for learning. In 1907, when Gavro was 13, the Princips arranged for their son to attend merchant school in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia. During his first year, Gavro excelled beyond his classmates devouring book after book and ending the year with the highest overall grade possible. But in 1908, his behavior began to change. That was the year when Austria-Hungary formally annexed Bosnia. Bosnia had been under the administrative control of Austria-Hungary since 1878, but in 1908, Bosnia officially became part of the empire. Even before the annexation, many Bosnians were grumbling about their Austro-Hungarian overlords. The massive empire didn't show much concern about the day-to-day -day problems of the local peasants, and the annexation looked like a maneuver to rein in that discontent before it became a full-scale rebellion. Bosnia's neighbor, Serbia, had already gained independence from the empire in the 19th century. As the capital of Bosnia, Sarajevo was a meeting point for revolutionaries who saw Serbia as a role model for independence. They dreamed of uniting all South Slavic peoples, which included Serbians, Croats, and Slovenes, into an independent nation, free from foreign control. 15-year-old Gavro was among those revolutionaries. Around 1909, Gavro became involved with an underground political movement known as Young Bosnia. Austria-Hungary had long ago banned youth political organizations, knowing full well that they tended to breed radicalism. As a result, those organizations had gone underground, making them even more rife with revolutionary sentiments. Through Young Bosnia, Gavro got his hands on numerous political books and treatises that he would otherwise never have had the chance to read, works by revolutionaries like Marx and Bakunin. He and his comrades gathered at the cafes of Sarajevo to debate things like democracy and socialism and anarchism, all the hottest topics of the day. 
The young Bosnians viewed their elders with contempt, seeing them as little more than collaborators with the Austro-Hungarians. They believed it was their generation, the youth, who were responsible for bringing about change. And for many of them, change took the form of assassination. In 1910, a young Bosnia member named Bogdan Zhivayic attempted to assassinate the governor of Bosnia, who had been appointed by the Austrians. It happened right there in Sarajevo, just a few blocks from where Gavro lived. The assassin fired five bullets at the governor, but missed. He used the last bullet to kill himself. Though he had failed in his attempt, Zhivayic's action inspired other disaffected youths like Gavrilo Princip. Gavro began to view Zhivayic as a hero and role model. Under the influence of these new radical politics, Princip had also begun to view the capitalist mercantile system as a tool used by Austria to oppress the Bosnian peasants. He certainly knew the struggle of those peasants firsthand, and he no longer wanted to have anything to do with the unfair system. Instead of staying in merchant school, he decided his best chance of effecting real change was to go to college and get a degree. So in the summer of 1910, Gavro transferred to a prominent local high school, intending to graduate and go to college. Housed in a large brown and white building in downtown Sarajevo, the school was just a five-minute walk to the spot where his path would one day cross with that of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. But his newfound commitment to education didn't last. He barely slipped by his first year, earning mostly C's and D's. He quit attending class altogether in 1912 when he was 18. But he hadn't given up academics completely. Instead, he'd come up with a new plan. He would travel to Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, and continue his studies there. If Sarajevo had been a hotbed of revolutionary sentiment and Slavic nationalism, Belgrade was the home base. As we mentioned, Serbia had earned its independence from the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. In 1912, right as Princip arrived in Belgrade, the country was involved in the First Balkan War. The Balkan Peninsula is a region of southeastern Europe that includes Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, and several other small countries in the area. Right at the crossroads of Europe in the Middle East, it has been occupied and fought over for much of human history. In 1912, the Turks still controlled a portion of this territory in the region north of Greece. Serbia and its allies, Bulgaria and Greece, intended to free this last part of the Balkans from Turkish rule. They succeeded in driving the Ottomans out by 1913, but Bulgaria was unhappy with the way the newly won territory was divided. This immediately led to the Second Balkan War. Bulgaria attacked its former allies, Serbia and Greece, fighting for a bigger portion of land. It was into this maelstrom of nationalism and warfare that Gavrilo Princip arrived in the summer of 1912. By this time, Gavro was a young man increasingly consumed by rage. Rage at the Austrian overlords who left Bosnia's large peasant society to suffer. Rage at the local Bosnian politicians who collaborated with the Austrians. 
rage at the Bosnian Muslim population who controlled much of the land occupied by poor Bosnian Serbs and Croats. But most of his rage was directed at the Austrians. He would later say, if I could, I would destroy Austria completely. In Serbia, Princip's pursuit of education continued, although it didn't go much better than it had in Sarajevo. Continuing to associate with radical groups and student organizations, he eventually became associated with a secret society known as the Black Hand. The Black Hand had been formed in 1901 by members of the Serbian military. It had played a key role in the 1903 assassinations of Serbia's king, queen, prime minister, and head of the army. Like other similar groups, it was devoted to ending colonialism in the Balkan Peninsula and unifying the area into an independent nation. When Princip became associated with the Black Hand in 1912 or 1913, he attempted to join an underground militia fighting against the Turks in Macedonia. But he was turned down due to his small stature. Humiliated, he left Belgrade for a while, but eventually returned, determined to prove himself. In the spring of 1914, 20-year-old Princip read that Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was due to visit Sarajevo that summer. Princip finally saw an opportunity to impress the Black Hand's leadership. He volunteered to assassinate the Archduke. Bogdan Javajic had tried and failed to start a revolution through tyrannicide in 1910. Princip believed he could succeed where his hero had failed. Coming up, we'll explore the life of Franz Ferdinand and Gavrilo Princip's plan to assassinate him. Now, back to the story. Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria was born around Christmas time in 1863. A member of the ruling Habsburg dynasty, his paternal uncle was the Emperor of Austria-Hungary, Franz Joseph. Raised in palaces and luxurious estates, Ferdinand began amassing his own personal wealth at the age of 11. That was when his cousin, the Duke of Modena, died and named Ferdinand as his heir. By the time of the Duke's death, his lands had long since been annexed into the Kingdom of Italy, but he still owned vast estates in Austria that made 11-year-old Franz Ferdinand a very wealthy child. Like most of Europe's male royals, Ferdinand entered military training at a young age. By the time he reached 14, he'd been commissioned a lieutenant. He eventually achieved the rank of Major General and later was named an admiral in the Navy. But the most transformative event in Ferdinand's life occurred in 1889 when he was 25. As nephew to the emperor, Ferdinand was not expected to inherit the throne. His cousin, Crown Prince Rudolf, was the heir apparent. But on the morning of January 30th, 1889, when Rudolf's valet went to wake him, there was no answer at the bedroom door. The valet knocked again and called the prince's name, but there was still no answer. He hurried to fetch an axe and broke down the door. Inside, he found Prince Rudolph on the floor with blood pouring from his mouth. On the bed lay a young woman with a bullet hole through her head. 
It took several days for authorities to determine what had happened. As it turned out, Rudolf, who was married, had been having an affair with a young 17-year-old baroness named Mary Vetsera. With an inclination towards depression, disinterest in running an empire, and an unhappy marriage that couldn't be annulled, Rudolf had talked his young lover into a suicide pact. Rudolf shot her in the head before putting the gun in his own mouth. A murder-suicide involving an imperial heir was the stuff of worldwide tabloids, but for Rudolf's cousin, Franz Ferdinand, it meant his prospects had suddenly improved dramatically. The emperor's only son had died. That made Ferdinand's father, Archduke Karl Ludwig, the heir to the throne. Karl Ludwig lived only seven more years before dying of typhoid in 1896. Upon his death, his 32-year-old son, Franz Ferdinand, became the new heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. Upon rising into the direct line for the throne, Franz Ferdinand began to be groomed for power. He was given more influence in the military and was promoted from colonel to general. To widen his perspective on international issues, he took a year-long trip around the world with stops in India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. Still, Ferdinand's relationship with his uncle, the emperor, was never good. Ferdinand's mother had died in her 20s from tuberculosis, and Ferdinand suffered from the disease himself. The emperor viewed Ferdinand as sickly and unlikely to live long enough to succeed him to the throne. Ferdinand ultimately overcame his illness, but he never forgave his uncle for writing him off. The real break in his relationship with Franz Joseph occurred over Ferdinand's marriage. Ferdinand was nearly 35 years old when he met his future wife. While stationed in Prague with the military, he met Sophie, the daughter of a Bohemian aristocrat. The two very quickly fell in love and wanted to get married. But there was just one problem. Sophie wasn't noble enough. She was from the second tier of Austro-Hungarian nobility, a mere countess and lady-in-waiting. Habsburg law required that only members of European royal families could marry into the dynasty. This law was strictly enforced, particularly when it involved the heir to the throne. When the emperor heard about his nephew's wish to marry a woman he viewed as little more than a commoner, he said, love makes people lose all sense of dignity. It took several years of arguments and negotiations for Ferdinand to convince his uncle to let him marry Sophie. Ultimately, the old man only relented because Ferdinand agreed to a morganatic marriage. A morganatic marriage is between two people of unequal social rank. In the case of Ferdinand and Sophie, Ferdinand was required to renounce all claims of royal titles for his wife and future children, including any ability for his children to ever succeed him to the throne. At their wedding in 1900, Ferdinand's stepmother was the only family member who bothered to attend. The entire episode was humiliating for the couple, and it helped ensure an irreparable split between the aging emperor and his heir. Franz Ferdinand held his resentment close for the rest of his life. If that had been the end of the story, the resentment might have faded with time, 
But following their marriage, Sophie was routinely prevented from appearing with her husband at official events. She would be left off stage, have doors closed in her face, and be placed at the back of royal processions. She wasn't even allowed to ride in the royal carriage or sit in the royal box at the theater. Ferdinand, already a pessimistic, ill-tempered man, finally left the Vienna court altogether. The family began spending much of their time at their spacious chateau in the countryside outside of Prague. Despite the troubles with his family, Ferdinand and Sophie's marriage was a happy one. Ferdinand once said, By far, the cleverest thing I ever did in my life was marry my Sophie. She is everything for me. His three children were his pride and joy, and he was known to conduct business while sitting on the floor playing with them. Much of that business involved Ferdinand's ideas for running and updating the empire. Much in the same way Gavrilo Princip and the members of Young Bosnia viewed their elders with contempt, Ferdinand saw his uncle as stodgy, conservative, and too comfortable with a status quo that was ill-suited for the realities of a new century. Ferdinand and his advisors were particularly concerned about the growing problems in the Balkans. Before his death in 1898, Otto von Bismarck, the former chancellor of Germany, had predicted that the next European war would come from, quote, some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. It didn't take a psychic to know that conditions were delicate in the peninsula. Throughout the first decade of the 1900s, Ferdinand and his advisors toyed with several ideas for how best to deal with this issue. Ferdinand proposed for the formation of a unified Slavic kingdom on the southern side of the empire, which would include all of Bosnia, Croatia, and Slovenia. The new kingdom would share a monarch and army with the rest of Austria-Hungary, but it would have its own parliament and administer its own lands. This was a highly controversial proposal. Perhaps surprisingly, it was especially unpopular among southern radical groups like Young Bosnia. Although groups like Young Bosnia were pushing for the formation of their own separate kingdom, they wanted complete independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They saw this proposal as merely an attempt by the Habsburgs to quell the revolutionary sentiment and maintain their power. They had no hope that a new parliament, established and led by the same local governors they already distrusted, would do anything to help the poor peasants of Bosnia. Princip and the radicals wanted to stir the people into revolution, not pacify them with a half-measure. For Princip, nothing short of a complete and total break with Austria was sufficient. And the best way to incite the people into the revolution was to assassinate the man who was trying to pacify them. Coming up next, the teenage peasant from rural Bosnia comes face to face with the heir to the throne. Now, back to the story. Franz Ferdinand once said, We are all constantly in danger of death. One must simply trust in God. That was his perspective on the reality of assassinations in the 19th and early 20th centuries. His own aunt, the wife of the emperor, had been assassinated by an anarchist in Switzerland in 1898. 
the presidents of France and the United States had been assassinated in 1894 and 1901, respectively. In 1900, the King of Italy had been shot by an anarchist. And in 1908, both the King of Portugal and his heir had been gunned down while traveling in an open carriage. When Franz Ferdinand decided to visit Sarajevo, Bosnia in the spring of 1914 to oversee military maneuvers on the border, many of his advisors warned him against it. According to some reports, even his family urged him not to go in fear of the city's revolutionary elements. But Ferdinand was a stubborn man. And there was also a secondary motive for his trip. It was a few days before his 14th wedding anniversary. Since Ferdinand would be traveling in his capacity as Inspector General of the military, not as the Archduke and heir presumptive, his wife Sophie would be allowed to stay by his side at public events. For the first time in their marriage, she would be treated as his equal. Neither of them were willing to imagine that their first public appearance together could also be their last. As soon as Gavrilo Princip heard that the Archduke, the architect of a plan that would quash his Bosnian uprising, was visiting Sarajevo, he recruited several of his associates from young Bosnia to help him kill Ferdinand before he could take the throne. Gavrilo was only 19, but he had the resolve and the connections to make it happen. He reached out to a member of the Serbian military who was involved with the Black Hand and asked for weapons and supplies. While still in Belgrade, Serbia, Princip and his associates practiced shooting and grenade throwing and laid out the details of their plan. On June 28th, all six assassins would line the street where the Archduke's motorcade was passing through, armed with either grenades or guns. If for any reason one assassin failed or was caught, five others would be at the ready. Once the deed was done, they would swallow cyanide pills to kill themselves before they could be arrested. Once their plans were complete, they crossed the border into Bosnia. All six assassins were in Sarajevo by late June 1914 when Franz Ferdinand arrived. After several days of overseeing military maneuvers at the border with Serbia, Ferdinand and his wife spent the evening of Saturday, June 27th at a grand banquet at their hotel in Sarajevo. That same night, across the city, Princip quietly slipped out into the warm summer evening and paid a visit to the tomb of Bogdan Zavajic, the young man who'd attempted to kill the governor of Bosnia four years earlier. Princip promised to finish what his hero had started, vowing to ignite the flame of revolution. The next day, June 28th, Ferdinand and Sophie were scheduled to parade in an open-top limousine through the heart of Sarajevo. It was perhaps not the best choice of dates. June 28th was the Serbian holiday of Vidovdin, commemorating the Battle of Kosovo, in which Serbia fell to the Ottoman Empire. It was a day of mourning and remembrance, a day when fallen heroes were honored, a symbol of the loss of freedom and independence. To many of the Serbs in Bosnia, choosing this day to parade through Sarajevo seemed at best tone-deaf and at worst intentionally antagonistic. 
The Archduke's convoy was set to drive along a boulevard named the Apple Key. It ran alongside the Milyatska River through downtown Sarajevo, passing a series of bridges that connected the two sides of the city. They would make their way to the town hall, where a reception was planned around 10.30 in the morning. Afterwards, they would tour the city and visit a local museum. They were scheduled to return home to Vienna that evening. As the caravan of limousines made its way from the train station to the Apple Key, Princip and his conspirators gathered along the route. Four congregated near the Camuria Bridge. Princip was a block farther down, standing by the Latin Bridge. The sixth and final assassin was stationed a block farther by the Kaiser Bridge. Both sides of the street were crowded with people who had come out to get a glimpse of their future ruler. The boulevard had been decorated with imperial flags, and there was a sense of festivity and excitement in the air. The Archduke and his wife were in the rear seat of the second car in the procession. Ferdinand was decked out in the uniform of an Austrian cavalry general, wearing a light blue jacket with red and gold trim and black pants with a red stripe down the side. Sophie was in all white with a red sash around her waist and a parasol to keep the hot Balkan sun off her face. As the procession neared the Camuria Bridge, Governor Pia Doric, who was acting as a tour guide for the royal couple, pointed out the new Austrian barracks that had recently been built across the street. While Pia Doric was pointing, a young man stepped forward from the wall along the riverbank. He pulled a grenade out of his pocket and struck it against a light post to break the firing cap. Right as the Archduke's car passed, he threw the grenade. Ferdinand saw it coming and raised his arm to fend it off. But the assassin's timing was just a moment too slow. The grenade bounced off the rear of the car and rolled onto the street. The car right behind the Archdukes drove over the grenade just as it exploded. As pandemonium broke out in the street, the parade of cars came to a halt. The young assassin who had thrown the grenade swallowed his cyanide pill before jumping over the wall and sliding down into the shallow river below. He was wrestled into the water by several bystanders. His cyanide pill wasn't strong enough to be fatal. It only made him sick and weak enough to be dragged away to the police station. Back in the street, Ferdinand turned around in his seat, checking to make sure that everyone in the damaged car was okay. Though several people had been injured, none of the injuries was serious, and the cars began moving forward again, this time at a faster clip. The other three assassins on the first bridge ran off the moment the grenade exploded. Princip, a block farther down, didn't know what had happened until the Archduke's car came speeding past him. He was too caught off guard to react. All he could do was watch in desperation as his target disappeared into the distance, still very much alive. The final assassin, who had been a block further up the street, fled after seeing the Archduke's car go by. Princip was the only one still in the game, but he knew that he still might have another chance. The Archduke's itinerary for the day, including the exact route the procession would take, had been published widely in local newspapers. 
After his reception at the town hall, the car was due to come back down the Apple Key and turn right into Franz Joseph Street, exactly where Princip was already standing. With his gun still safely in his pocket, Gavro crossed the street and settled down in front of a small corner cafe to wait. Meanwhile, Ferdinand and Sophie reached the town hall, a large Moorish-style building in hues of brown and yellow. A delegation of local dignitaries in red fezes and turbans waited to greet them, lining the seven steps up to the pillared entrance. They saluted the Archduke as he ascended the stairs arm-in-arm with his wife. The mayor of Sarajevo, not knowing what had happened on the way over, began his rehearsed greeting. He was cut short by the Archduke, whose famous temper was about to be unleashed. He thundered, Mr. Mayor, what is the good of your speech? I come to Sarajevo on a friendly visit, and someone throws a bomb at me. It is outrageous. The mayor and his officials were saved when Sophie laid a hand on her husband's arm and whispered some calming words in his ear. The reception continued as planned, lasting only briefly before it was time to return to the limousines and head out for the tour of the city. Archduke Ferdinand, however, was no longer in the mood for a tour and a museum visit. He insisted on going to the local hospital first to pay a courtesy visit to those who were injured in the explosion that morning. It was agreed that they would cancel the rest of the day and return to the train station after visiting the hospital. With this change of plans, they deviated from the planned route of the procession. Instead of turning right onto Franz Joseph Street at the Latin Bridge, they would stay on the Apple Key, returning the exact same way they came. There was just one problem. No one told the driver of the lead car about the change of plans. Ferdinand and Sophie climbed back into their open-top limousine. Governor Piodoric once again took his spot in the jump seat. Count Harak, Ferdinand's aide-de-camp, had previously been sitting by the chauffeur in the front seat. But on the return trip, he valiantly decided to guard his future monarch by standing on the running board next to him. The bomb, after all, had come from that direction, the side facing the river. It was about 10.45 in the morning when the procession of cars motored off down the Apple Key. Crowds still lined the streets, and banners and flags still hung from the balconies. At the corner of Franz Joseph Street, where the procession was supposed to pass, the crowds were standing shoulder to shoulder, straining for one last glimpse of the royal couple. Sophie had put down her parasol and was fully exposed to the morning sun. The Archduke, in his light blue tunic, sat tall and straight in his seat, his feathered hat waving in the breeze. As the Archduke's car approached the intersection, a man by the river took off his hat and waved it gaily at the passing couple. A young boy in a fez looked on with fascination at the dignified Duchess Sophie, resplendent like an angel in white. On the other side of the street, a photographer snapped a picture just as the vehicle passed. The lead driver, who hadn't been informed that the plans had changed, turned down Franz Joseph Street as originally intended. The second limousine's driver mindlessly followed. 
Governor Pia Doric didn't realize what was happening until they were already turning onto Franz Joseph Street. He leaned forward and snapped at the driver to turn around. The driver hit the brakes, coming to a halt in front of the cafe on the right side of Franz Joseph Street. Just a few feet away stood Gavrilo Princip. Princip stepped forward. He was an atheist, but he recalled feeling as though the gods had dropped his target right into his lap. He reached for his revolver, took aim at Franz Ferdinand, and pulled the trigger. Then he aimed at General Piodoric and pulled the trigger again. But someone grabbed his arm just as the second shot fired. The bullet hit the panel above the car's right rear fender. The crowd wrestled Princip to the ground, disarming him. He managed to swallow a cyanide pill, but like his previous comrade, it only incapacitated him. The crowd nearly beat him to death before police were able to arrest him. The Archduke's car quickly backed out of Franz Joseph Street and sped off down the Apple Key. For a moment, it seemed that both shots had missed, as neither the Archduke nor his wife seemed injured. But then Ferdinand choked, and blood began seeping from his mouth. His aide-de-camp, Count Harak, took out his handkerchief to dab the blood away. Sophie exclaimed, For heaven's sake, what has happened to you? A moment later, she unexpectedly collapsed into her husband's lap. Harak thought she had fainted, but it soon became obvious that the bullet that hit the rear panel had passed through and entered her abdomen. She was bleeding profusely under her white dress. Realizing that his wife had been shot, the Archduke cried out, Sophie, Sophie, please don't die. Live for our children. Ferdinand was bleeding too. The first shot had hit him on the right side, a half inch below his stiff, gold-braided collar. It had made only the tiniest hole, almost invisible, but the bullet had passed through his neck, severing arteries as it went. As the car sped toward the governor's house, Harak asked Ferdinand if he was in very much pain. He replied in a choking voice, It is nothing. It is nothing. He repeated it over and over, his voice growing weaker each time. His voice turned to a hoarse rattle, and then it stopped. Gavrilo Princip had wanted to spark a rebellion that would change the Austrian Empire, but Franz Ferdinand's death would spark something much, much bigger than Princip had bargained for. The end of Ferdinand's story is only the beginning of ours. We'll explore the aftermath next week. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, 
and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Scott Christmas and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 